Welcome back, everyone. I am Michael, your host for Antediluvian Revelations, a poetic retelling of the Book of Enoch, the Prophet. This is the fifth segment of the Revised Summary Discussion of Part 2. The Three Tricks of Psycholinguistic Manipulation The intentional use of pronouns without clear antecedents is the first trick used by the heretical editors who curse the text of the canonized Holy Bible. And this trick has the purpose of causing confusion, resulting in the possibility for multiple interpretations of the text. Without clear antecedents for the pronominals you, thou, they, this one, and him, the meaning for the entire passage becomes confused, which is the precise evidence of psycholinguistic manipulation, proving that both Psalm 110 and the book of Hebrews are curses added into the Holy Bible. Heretics created the canonized text of the Holy Bible and altered it repeatedly for approximately 300 years before a Roman emperor decreed no more changes would be allowed. The same prohibition on changes to the Holy Bible have been instituted by English monarchs after creating the King James Version of the Holy Bible, which is also an editorialized fraud and a cursed text. The lack of clarity in the meaning of the text resulting from the intentional grammatical error causes the misidentification of Melchizedek. The heretic who wrote the epistle to the Hebrews uses the trick of stating a pronoun without a clear antecedent in order to combine the Genesis chapter 14 verse 18 reference with the Psalm 110 verse 4 reference for the purpose of insinuating that the two different Melchizedeks are the same person. The two references are not about the same entity named Melchizedek. The misidentification of Melchizedek in the text of Psalm 110 is the result of this pronoun without a clear antecedent trick. But there is also the misuse of capitalization as another trick used in the creation of the Melchizedekian curse. The misuse of capitalization trick appears in the first verse of Psalm 110. And it is a clue to unraveling the psycholinguistic manipulations applied in the faulty logic of the New Testament testimonies. Capitalizing the word Lord has the purpose of causing confusion about the identity of the person being named. The Lord said unto my Lord is the text heretics injected into the Gospels as being quoted by Jesus in his argument with the Pharisees as evidence that David identified Jesus as being his superior and equivalent to God. The New Testament document fraudulently quotes Jesus as saying, from verse 42, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David? They replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? The faulty logic in this passage is a component of the very elaborately constructed psycholinguistic manipulation that also appears in the testimonies of Mark and Luke with only slight variations in wording. And the repetitions of this reference are poor attempts to conceal the fraudulent editorialization technique of plagiarism. Not only does the question create a circuitous argument, which is a type of faulty logic, but it is also a blasphemy to have put these ignorant words into the mouth of Jesus Christ, who was prodigiously intelligent. 
stating the faulty logic of this moronic argument was not the true character of Jesus, and the statements falsely attributed to him are beneath his intellectual capability as the anointed one gifted with God's Holy Spirit. Throughout the Gospels, there are statements truthfully attributed to Jesus, but not every statement attributed to Jesus was something he actually said. The passages referencing Psalm 110 were fraudulent editorializations that had the purpose of validating the inclusion of Psalm 110 in the Old Testament and the addition to the epistle to the Hebrews in the New Testament of the canonized Holy Bible. David did not write Psalm 110, and the book of Hebrews is heretical fraud with no known author. The combination of altering texts in the Old Testament and creating supporting texts in the New Testament that became the canonized Holy Bible had the purpose of supporting Catholic doctrine, which was not a theology created on the basis of Judaism as it appeared in the Torah and Talmud prior to the Second Temple period. Catholicism is a theology created on the basis of pagan Roman mythology and the message of Christ with texts originating in Judaism altered during the Second Temple period and process of canonization instigated by pagan Romans and heretical Jews. Simply stated, the canonized Holy Bible has been heretically editorialized and altered during the first few hundred years after Christ so that it supports the polytheistic Catholic doctrine based on Roman mythology and discredits existing beliefs in Judaism as a monotheistic religion originating in the time of the prophet Abraham. The misuse of capitalization is the second trick used in Psalm 110 verse 4 and it appears with only slight alteration in the epistle to the Hebrews text. The capitalization of you and thou have a similar purpose to the capitalization of Lord in the first verse. The use of capitalization is the standard applied in biblical text when the pronoun refers to God but that capitalization standard does not apply in publication standards for scholarly texts such as this one. Pronouns referring to God are not capitalized by publication standards for non-biblical texts unless specifically quoted from a biblical source. The Psalms are poems within the Holy Bible, and the standard of capitalizing pronouns referring to God are capitalized by the applicable standard. With this in mind, the question then arises about the antecedent for the pronouns being capitalized in Psalm 110 verse 4. The answer is forthcoming. The third trick of psycholinguistic manipulation is the faulty use of punctuation in Psalm 110 verse 4. The first comma is not correct because the conjunction enables a compound predicate which eliminates the need for a comma. A comma is used to join two independent clauses with a coordinating conjunction and there are not two independent clauses being joined because the Lord has sworn and will not lie is a simple sentence with a compound predicate. The sentence is not a compound sentence made of two independent clauses because there is no subject for the second verb phrase. The two verb phrases for the subject, the Lord, are, has sworn, and will not lie. Without a second subject for the second verb phrase actually being stated in the sentence, the single subject has a compound predicate, which does not require a comma with a coordinating conjunction. Errors are curses. The next application of the faulty punctuation trick is the second use of a comma in Psalm 110 verse 4, and this error is called a comma splice. 
The joining of two independent clauses with a comma and no coordinating conjunction is a comma splice error. A simple solution is to change the comma to a period, but that would also remove the trick of faulty capitalization because the capitalized pronoun will be the first word in the second sentence. The pronouns will still be without a clear antecedent, but the words you and thou will no longer be a psycholinguistic manipulation caused by capitalization and having the intent to confuse the reader about the antecedent identity of the pronouns. The reader will still need to determine if the pronouns refer to the first lord or the second lord, as stated in the first verse. An alternate solution that maintains the capitalization trick is to join the two clauses with a semicolon. This solution will cause the pronouns to have the antecedent of the subject appearing in the first of the two clauses being joined with the semicolon because a semicolon joins two independent clauses that have closely related ideas. A semicolon cannot be used to join two independent clauses that have unrelated ideas. If the antecedent for the capitalized pronouns you or thou is not the Lord, then the ideas expressed in the two independent clauses are not related because the subjects are not about the same subject or predicate. There is no clearly stated relationship on which to base the use of a semicolon to join the two clauses. The final solution for resolving the tricks of psycholinguistic manipulation in Psalm 110 verse 4 is to revise the verse to say, quote, The Lord has sworn and will not lie, period, my Lord, comma, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, period, end quote. In this depaganized version of the verse, there are two separate sentences. The first sentence has a single subject and a compound predicate, which is an ordinary simple sentence having one subject and one predicate. The second sentence is also a simple sentence, but the added noun in apposition clarifies the antecedent for the pronoun. David refers to the Lord of my Lord in the first verse, which is a reference to God. In this correction of the fourth verse, David is referring to a person who is superior to him, but not necessarily the same as God. The trick of capitalization still appears in the solution, but the effect is not psychologically manipulating with linguistic prestidigitation. The solution shows that David regards someone as being greater than himself and that other person is not God. Psalm 110 has been cursed with psycholinguistic manipulations that have enabled a fraudulent belief in Melchizedek to have been equivalent to Jesus Christ. Who is Melchizedek? An unexpected answer to this all-important question may be found in 11Q13, which is the numerical designation for the Dead Sea Scroll fragment containing the second of two Melchizedek references appearing among the entire collection of the Dead Sea Scroll discovery. The text in 11Q13 does not appear anywhere else in any other biblical text, and the scholar who translated the text identified it as an eschatological pesher wherein Melchizedek is assumed to have been an angel, a son of God. According to the notes for scrolls in Cave 11, appearing on page 512 in the list of manuscripts from Qumran, see Garcia Martinez, 1994. An eschatological pressure is the explanation of end-time prophecy or apocalyptic scripture. Before continuing the examination of the text in 11Q13, it must be stated that the curse of Melchizedek in Psalm 110 verse 4 and Hebrews chapter 7 verse 21 has the ultimate purpose of tricking the reader into falsely believing that Jesus Christ was an angel, son of God, 
the same as Melchizedek. Many biblical scholars and translators have fallen victim to the psycholinguistic manipulations of the Melchizedekian curse, the same as many innocent people who have read the Urantia book. Jesus Christ was not the Son of God because he was a human being, conceived and born of flesh and blood. The sons of God were eternally spiritual beings who may manifest themselves as physical beings on earth, but they are not human, nor born as human beings on earth. Angels are not flesh and blood the same as human beings. According to the Ethiopic Book of Enoch and the poetic retelling in Antediluvian Revelations, the fallen sons of God manifested themselves on earth as physical beings in an act of rebellion led by Satan, who persuaded 200 of them to violate God's prohibition and have offspring of their own with human females. Their manifestation on earth as physical beings does not mean they were the same as human beings, which explains the cause of abominated mutations and the real reasoning beyond immorality that God prohibited angels from procreating with humans. Human beings and alien angels are not genetically compatible. Jesus was the offspring of Jacob and Mary, two human beings. God did not impregnate Mary with a child that would be his offspring because this action was immoral. And God prohibited the immoral procreation between spiritual beings and human beings. If it were the case that Jesus was the offspring of God and a human female, then Jesus Christ would have been a mamzer, a bastard child who had no man as his father. Additionally, the accusation of God impregnating a human female to bear his offspring accuses God of being a hypocrite for punishing the watchers who committed this crime in violation of God's rules for their conduct in the universe. Simply stated, it means God sinned, the same as his sons. God is perfect and never needs to repent of sin because God does not sin. And God did not impregnate a human female in violation of his own laws of conduct in the universe. In the examination of the reference to Melchizedek in 11Q13, it becomes very important to premise this discussion with information about the content and purpose of this one scroll fragment that differentiates it from the Genesis Apocryphon. The translator of the 11Q13 scroll and other scholars have identified it as a pesher, which may be a new term for many readers or listeners because it originates in the ancient Hebrew text of the Dead Sea Scrolls and means interpretation. The discussion segments in this book are a type of pesher. The purpose of the discussion segments in Antediluvian Revelations is to interpret and explain biblical scripture and the content of the book of Enoch as it appears in the author's poetic retelling. The purpose of 11Q13 is to provide an interpretation or explanation of an unidentified biblical topic that is not clearly identified with specificity in the preamble to the pesher passage. There are multiple scriptural references cited by, for the apparent purpose of interpreting or explaining some argument about the content of an unidentified text that may actually be the Book of Enoch. And the name of Melchizedek appears seven times in the translated text of this Pesher. The evidence appearing in the translated text of 11Q13 suggests that this Pesher is more like an extended sermonic argument than a simple interpretation of any specific scriptural passage. The 11Q13 scroll is also noted as a non-biblical manuscript differentiated from those that are biblical manuscripts such as the Genesis Apocryphon. The scroll is a fragment, so it is not completely readable nor accurately decipherable because of missing or unreadable segments of the parchment. 
Much of the translation for this scroll appears to be assumptions made by the translator or other scholars. The translator presents his assumptions about the missing information by placing his words within brackets. An attempt to create a summary of lines 1 through 9 may also include some of these assumptions about the specific details in the translation, but this summary will be based on the who, what, where, when, why, and how characteristics that may be factually substantiated by text translated from the original scroll. In the initial lines of 11Q13, the text describes the matter of a jubilee in accordance with Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 2, which is about the release of captives in a jubilee year. The captives being discussed in this text are the fallen watchers and their offspring, assumed to be referred to by the translated text, the sons of God and the men of the lot of Melchizedek. The argument presented is that Melchizedek will proclaim liberty for the captives on the Day of Atonement during a jubilee year in the presence of God in heaven and all of the other angels in order to free them from all their iniquities. The who, what, when, and where have now been established in this summary, but the why and how are not so obvious. Stated another way, Melchizedek, who, will plead for the freedom for the fallen watchers and their offspring, the Nephilim, what, on the Day of Atonement during a jubilee year, when, in the presence of God in heaven and all of the other angels, where, all of this summary seems accurately supported in the translated text for column 2, lines 1 through 9, with only minimal assumptions being made. It might become obvious from a careful review of the author's summary and a comparison of the 11Q13 translation that the use of the word Melchizedek in that scroll fragment may not have been as a formal name when comparing its uses to that in Genesis, Psalms, and Hebrews. Melchizedek is not the specific name of just one entity. Instead, Melchizedek is the name of two different entities whose purpose or function has been to be a peacemaker. The preamble to the Pesher appearing in the lines of 1 through 9 of 11Q13 fragment describes how a Melchizedek, an unspecified entity serving as peacemaker between God and Belial, designated to fulfill the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 through 3, for a jubilee year will request the release of the imprisoned fallen watchers and the spirits of their offspring being held captive on earth when the chosen Melchizedek stands before God on the Day of Atonement in a jubilee year. Of course, this statement is an alternate version of the summary previously provided and it includes some assumptions not completely validated by available translated text in 11Q13 appearing in column 2 lines 1 through 9. The translation of column 2 lines 10 through 11 reveals scriptural references to Psalm 82 and Psalm 7, and the unknown author of this pressure presents three, these scriptures for the validation of statements being made about the what and where as stated in the preamble to the Pesher passage. The lines after these scriptural references comprise one of two Pesher passages, beginning with the neutral possessive case pronoun having the grammatical functionality of a demonstrative pronoun. The unknown author of the Pesher provides an interpretation of the Psalms. Its interpretation concerns Belial and the spirits of his lot, who were rebels, all of them, turned aside from the commandments of God to commit evil. The problem with this interpretation is that the ancient rabbi is referring to texts that no longer exist among the materials of a modern version of the Torah, Talmud, or Holy Bible. The Pesher is an interpretation of information appearing in the Book of Enoch. As previously stated, there is not a clear indication of precisely what biblical scripture is being interpreted in this pressure from the beginning because there is missing material, such as a title or other prefacing statements that would typically introduce any essay. However, the topic for this pressure becomes revealed in the body of the text. Line 12 is a reference to the biblical story appearing in the Book of Enoch. 
The story in the book of Enoch describes one among the sons of God, rebelling against God and leading two other sons of God to go down to the earth and have offspring of their own with the daughters of men. The story of the angel rebellion also appears briefly stated as a mosaic variant in Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 through 7, but it has also been presented with extensive details in the poetic retelling within part 1 of Antediluvian Revelations. Modern biblical scholars have never made the connection between this scroll fragment and the story of the fallen watchers that appears in the book of Enoch because this scroll fragment is a sermonic pesher originating in the first temple period. Before revisionary changes occurring in the second temple period and the subsequent canonization of texts that became the Holy Bible in the first few hundred years after Christ, the book of Enoch was included among the biblical texts sacred to Jews and it was taught in sermonic peshers like this one in 11Q13. Because the book of Enoch contains prophecy about the coming of the Messiah, the Anointed One. The evidence of a reference to Messianic prophecy begins in line 18. And the messenger is the Anointed of the Spirit about whom Daniel spoke. And the messenger of good who announces salvation is the one about whom it is written. The messenger referred to in these lines is not equivalent to a Melchizedek because they are two different entities having separate functions. A Melchizedek is a peacemaker, and a messenger is the Messiah, or prophet anointed by God's Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ was not a Melchizedek, nor a priest in the order of Melchizedek, because he was the Messiah, anointed with God's Holy Spirit. An alternate point of view about these two separate entities is to consider that a Melchizedek is an attorney for the defendants and the Messiah to be the attorney for the plaintiffs. A Melchizedek defends the accused in God's court of judgment, and then a Messiah defends the victims as the prosecutor or plaintiff's attorney. Well, that is all the time we have for this episode. Thank you for listening. I am Michael. Michael.